Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Welcome to the Macmillan Report. I'm Marilyn Wilkes, your host, and our guest is David Cameron, a professor of political science at Yale and the director of the European Union Studies Program at the Macmillan Center. He joins us today to discuss the ongoing Eurozone debt crisis, which began three years ago, shortly after a newly elected government in Greece announced that the budget deficit would be much larger than the previous government had predicted. In May of 2010, after Greece found it was unable to issue new debt to cover maturing debt and its deficit, it requested assistance from the EU and the IMF and received a three-year loan of 110 billion euros. Yet two and a half years later, Greece still needs assistance, and last week the Parliament approved another round of deficit reduction measures in order to receive the first installment of a second bailout this one of 130 billion euros. Welcome, Professor Cameron. Thank you. So tell me, why does Greece need the second bailout? Well, Greece needs a second bailout because the first one of 110 billion mm -hmm. uh, wasn't enough. Uh, their deficit turned out to be much larger than they had anticipated because in 2010, they introduced a, uh, an austerity budget cutting the deficit, mm -hmm. uh, cutting spending, raising taxes. Um, that made uh, the economic contraction worse. Uh, therefore, they had to do that again, and they had to do it a couple of more times. And mm -hmm. by the spring of 2011, it was clear that they would need another 170 billion or so uh, of help. Mm -hmm. uh, 40 billion of which might be the remainder of the initial bailout, but that meant they would need another 130 billion or so. That was decided a year and a half ago, and we are still now uh, going through the negotiations over this second bailout. So it is not yet completed. Uh, Greece hasn't yet received the first mm -hmm. tranche or slice of the second bailout. Uh, it's been going on for almost 18 months, this protracted negotiation, mm -hmm. uh, in part because uh, the second bailout required the private sector bondholders to take a substantial haircut, okay. reduction in the face value of their bonds. Um, and uh, the so-called Troika, the uh, EU, uh, the ECB, the European Central Bank, and the IMF uh, had to agree that Greece had met the terms of the second bailout. Okay. And they aren't quite there yet, wow. and Greece is running out of money. Okay. What Over the past three years, Greece has had to do um, a certain number of things, uh, deficit reduction things. What has been the fallout from that, politically, economically? Well, the fallout has, they've concentrated on cutting spending. Mm -hmm. uh, there's been a, a recurring problem that Greece doesn't have enough tax revenues, and there's been enormous tax evasion. That's an issue now. 
they aren't. Do you mean the the um, the public is not paying their taxes? Uh, people have been taking euros out of the country okay. if they could because they feared that Greece might have to leave the eurozone and mm -hmm. introduce a new currency, its own currency that would depreciate in value. So people holding euros mm -hmm. in Greece fled if they could. Right. So a tremendous amount of money has gone. Uh, the pressure has been primarily on cutting spending and as a result the economy has contracted further um, and meaning the GDP has dropped substantially more mm -hmm. than was estimated initially. The unemployment rate has now gone up over 25 percent. Wow. Uh, those under the age of 25 uh, have an unemployment rate over 50 percent. Uh, and there's enormous um, pressure on pensions, uh, on the elderly, on health care, uh, and, uh, and on the private sector. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's, it's a huge and recurring problem. Right. Meanwhile, uh, the debt that Greece has now has continued to increase as a share of GDP. So it's now approaching mm -hmm. 180, 190 percent of GDP. Uh, and there's a likelihood it will need another additional um, haircut for the uh, bondholders many of whom now are official bondholders mm -hmm. or official so, lenders. Okay, so this has been going on for, for a while now, three years uh, minimally. Um, what, why has it been so difficult to deal with this um, Greek crisis? And do you see any light uh, at the end of the tunnel, so to speak? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting problem because Greece isn't the only country that has had to get right. um, assistance. Mm -hmm. Um, Latvia had to back in uh, 2008, um, uh, Ireland uh, in 2010, Portugal in 2011, mm -hmm. uh, and the Spanish banks uh, need assistance now, and Cyprus is about oh, to dear. get uh, a loan as well. But um, putting aside Cyprus, uh, of all of those, uh, by far the most difficult case has been Greece. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think, uh, to tell the truth, it's a combination of the fact that the problems have existed from the outset. Greece had 100% of GDP, a debt GDP ratio of 100% when it came in, mm -hmm. when it was admitted initially in 2001. It had a deficit way over the 3% limit mm -hmm. that the E. Uh, EU has for Eurozone states mm -hmm. uh, from, the ots from the onset of And were they membership. working with them from the onset to try and deal with that issue or are they just... Well they were but one of the problems is the Eurozone, there are many problems in the Eurozone and, and why this crisis mm -hmm. uh, came up but um, one of the problems was the fact that the Eurozone has no real uh, ability to limit budget deficits and mm -hmm. the debt of the member states. They can warn them about it. They can issue stern declarations that they mm -hmm. have an excessive deficit, but they have no effective sanctions. Okay. And they have no effective ability to limit that. Um, as a result, Greece has uh, been a very difficult um, debtor, you mm -hmm. might say. Uh, it's 
had very difficult political problems in reaching agreements on all of the austerity budgets that the Eurozone and uh, the IMF have required of mm -hmm. it. Uh, compare that with Ireland, for example, which has gone through the same process mm -hmm. and is now, although it still has a high level of unemployment, it's still doing, it, it is doing much better. Mm -hmm. uh, and so why is Ireland doing so much better, yet Greece is still struggling? Well, Ireland basically, um, I hate to sound, uh, use a, a trite cliche, but Ireland has taken its medicine. Uh. It figured out, it realized what it had to do, uh, and it did it quickly, and it did it early. And it's what, did, what did it have to do? Well, among other things, it recapitalized its banks. Mm -hmm. It reorganized and recapitalized its banks uh, immediately. Uh, that's something that is still a lagging problem for Greece, and mm -hmm. it's a problem for other countries as well, such as Spain. Uh, and uh, it took the bitter pill of austerity, which mm -hmm. means reductions in wages um, and reductions in spending, so you do get a, a severe economic contraction. Mm -hmm. Another example would be the three Baltic states, which went through a depression-sized uh, economic contraction in 2008 and 9 uh, and kept their currencies pegged to the euro throughout uh, um, took a, um, a very difficult economic contraction and have now pulled out and mm -hmm. actually have relatively high rates of growth and they're generating new jobs and they're doing better. Mm -hmm. Greece has never really um, re gone to that point. Mm -hmm. It's resisted each right. step of the way and it's um, partly um, uh, inability mm -hmm. to uh, political uh, to have to carry out the political obligations that they make uh, when they negotiate these uh, bailouts. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it's a problem of administrative competence of the government. I think uh, wow. uh, it's a, it's a it's a you might say Greece is a deviant case to some extent in right. these uh, in this. Crisis. Okay, given that then, do you see um, a way out for Greece, a light at the end of the tunnel, anything? Well, I think there will be eventually a recovery, but uh, just to give you an example, there is now an argument going on between the IMF and the Eurozone over whether Greece will get its debt-to-GDP ratio back down to 120 percent by 2020. Oh my goodness. The IMF it says it has to. Uh, the Eurozone is now saying, well, it probably won't. Mm -hmm. uh, I think um, the conversation that's going on now is focused on the fact that sooner or later Greece will have to uh, write off a substantial additional portion of its debt. Mm -hmm. And that'll mean that other Eurozone countries, the official lenders, will take losses. Right. But there's really no way out uh, other than uh, ultimately writing off some of that debt because I think most people realize it's unsustainable. Mm -hmm. So wouldn't it be better to write that debt off sooner rather than later? It would be. <laughs> it would be. Um, uh, many people think it uh -huh. would have been smart to have done that early. Uh, and But that's very difficult, of course. Um, um, politically to mm -hmm. do, um, but 
Okay. So as you look back over the past three years, what do you think are the most important reasons that this um, crisis occurred? And what can what could have been done that's that's not what can be done that isn't already being done to prevent it happening again? Well, I think there are a number of reasons. One reason this crisis happened is that it the commitment to EMU was a political commitment. It wasn't an it wasn't based on economic criteria. Mm -hmm. And while there were economic criteria the countries had to satisfy in order to get into the Eurozone, low interest rate, low uh, deficit, um, so forth. In fact, uh, those criteria were loosely applied. Some of the countries that didn't meet mm -hmm. the criteria were nevertheless let in. Uh, and the criteria didn't have anything to do with competitiveness, with the ability of a country to compete in the uh, European single internal market mm -hmm. without resorting to devaluation. Uh, a second problem was uh, what I mentioned earlier, they had no effective and still have no strong effective sanctions for excessive deficits, uh, excessive uh, debt, uh, excessive structural imbalances. A third factor that's uh, important, it seems to me, is that they have uh, no means yet of regulating the financial flows uh, that occur of, of banks borrowing and lending. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the uh, consequences of going to the single currency, um, which meant, among other things, a single monetary policy run by the European Central Bank, mm -hmm and a single central bank controlled interest rate was that interest rates plummeted in the countries that used to have very high interest rates pre-euro. Mm -hmm. um, most notably Greece, Italy, Spain, Portugal, Southern Europe. That meant that it was much cheaper to borrow and so there was a, um, a tremendous increase in borrowing uh, and much of that borrowing came from other European banks mm -hmm. uh, and there was a tremendous flow of money into the south um, from northern banks and from the banks in the south as well uh, for development projects, real estate, uh, housing construction, so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, all of which was completely unregulated and we now have a situation where there's uh, a huge amount of money uh, sitting in the banks uh, that banks are, are owed mm -hmm. uh, by borrowers who cannot repay the loans and those banks can't repay the banks from which they borrow mm -hmm. the money. Uh, all of that is a long-winded way of saying uh, one thing that EMU didn't do was it didn't create a banking union, didn't create a single regulatory mechanism to oversee uh, financial flows, mm -hmm. borrowing and lending within the Eurozone. Do you think that's something that they will consider doing moving forward? Well, they are committed now. They now, they now realize they have to do that and they have actually committed to creating what they call a single supervisory mechanism for the financial institutions mm -hmm. um, by the end of this year and have it operational as of next year. And once that's in place, then there may be a way to recapitalize the banks in Spain, 
uh, and elsewhere that need need assistance because essentially uh, many of the loans that they have are non-performing and will never be paid off. Right, right. You have argued um, that the Eurozone will remain intact while others have said it probably <coughs> will disintegrate. Do you still believe that it will stay together or do you believe are, given the situation that we see today, do you think it, it is possible for it to stay together? Uh, yes, I think, it, I think it will stay mm -hmm. together. I've um, made that argument um, in print mm -hmm. and I've made it actually before Mario Draghi uh, this summer that the president of the European Central Bank mm -hmm. said the Central Bank will do whatever it takes to keep the Eurozone going. And, and I have made that argument for a simple reason. Mm -hmm. Um, the European states are highly dependent on trade with each other. Okay. The, probably the single most important treaty in the history of the European Union was the Treaty of Rome that created a single internal market, free movement of goods, services, capital, people. Mm -hmm. uh, as the res a result of that, the trade, uh, the dependence of or the extent to which countries uh, depended on exports increased over time. But what increased in particular were their exports to other members of the European Union. Uh, so the countries are highly dependent on that trade. Uh, just to give you an example, uh, Germany uh, uh, exports for Germany uh, constitute 50% of its GDP. Mm -hmm. That's much more than in the U.S. Right. And 60% of those exports um, go to other EU states which means that 30% of its GDP comes from exports to other EU countries. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's true of all of the European states. Now, uh, imagine if we in the U.S. had 50 different central banks and 50 different currencies with our economies as highly integrated uh, and interdependent mm -hmm. as they are. Sooner or later, someone would say, what we need mm -hmm. is a single central bank and a single currency. Much simpler. Uh, and it reduces all kinds of transaction costs and impediments to trade and the movement of goods and services and so forth. So I think that's uh, a fundamental structural imperative that actually led the EU to propose, uh, back when I was in the EC, the European community, back in the late 60s and 70s, proposed the creation of EMU. So I think there is a very strong impulse to move forward. Mm -hmm. The problem, though, is that they created a monetary union, but they didn't create an economic union. We have EMU without the E, economic and monetary union, but we don't have the economic union. But what do you mean by that? Well, I mean a high degree of coordination of economic policies mm -hmm. uh, so that the states are, are cooperating in setting uh, their macroeconomic targets. So they're all working on the same page, so to speak. Yeah, and in terms of fiscal policy, it means some degree of collective authority mm -hmm. over the budgets, over the fiscal policies of the member states, uh, a fiscal union is uh, a phrase that has been used very widely recently mm -hmm. uh, and they are moving very slowly toward that uh, so that you could imagine an economic 
and monetary union would include not only a monetary union, but a banking union, mm -hmm. a fiscal union, an economic union. And they're trying to create all of that, mm -hmm. but they're doing it on the fly, you might say, right. in an ad hoc, post hoc way, responding to the crisis. Right. And in some sense, it reflects the shortcomings in the initial design, uh, you might say design flaws mm -hmm. of EMU as it now exists. And they recognize that and they're moving toward it. Uh, and in fact, we'll be talking about that in the next European Council meetings. Uh, but whether when, they will, when will those be? Well, there'll be a meeting actually, there's one next week and then there's one in December. Mm -hmm. um, the European Council of the heads of state and government of the member states. Mm -hmm. uh, and they are looking at the possibility of a treaty uh, at some point in the future that would move them some distance mm -hmm. uh, closer to that goal. But right. it's still a goal in the future. How, how far in the future do you think? A long way in the really? future. Um, and a long way in the future in part because a treaty requires ratification by all of the member states. Mm -hmm. And while, uh, and that means uh, public support mm -hmm. in some cases. Uh, there are some countries that would, many countries actually, that would re feel they had to have a referendum on a treaty that was actually creating, say, a quote, genuine EMU, mm -hmm. uh, which is what is now being discussed in the European Council. Mm -hmm. uh, and we've had previous treaties that have been defeated in referendums. Uh, the public has lost a great deal of trust in the EU as a result of this uh, crisis. Uh, and there are further complications as well. For example, the German Constitutional Court would have to approve any treaty and it has been of all the actors in this crisis the one that has most consistently argued for uh, protecting democratic rule mm -hmm. in the states uh, as they move toward greater supranational control over economic, fiscal, monetary policy. Mm. And how do you create a fiscal union, a banking union, an economic union, moving those powers to the European level and still have fully democratic states controlling their budgets, con doing what parliaments do? It seems so impossible. That's a a real challenge mm -hmm. and it's something that the Constitutional Court is very worried about. Right. Well, more to come clearly. To come. So thank you for being here with us today and, and sharing some of your work around this um, ongoing crisis. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. For more information about Professor Cameron and his research, please visit our website at yale.edu slash Report. Be sure to join us again for another episode of the Macmillan Report, made possible through funding from the Whitney and Betty Macmillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale.